Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Lux Files. I'm your host, Sean. And with me today is a fantastic person that I'm so excited to have on the podcast, Kara Hamilton, Psychic Demonstrator. Hello, hello, Kara. Hello there, Sean. It's lovely to be here with you. Thank and what you. a super introduction, too. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. I'm very excited about this. So I am also good, good. So how are you? Very, very well. Just very glad it's a Friday. It is after five o'clock where I am. Yeah. Um, you I realize it's lunchtime. Yeah. Um, so I'm so delighted that it's I can now rest and start to put my nose in a book and do some fabulous things, or hope to, at, at least. This is the first time I've done my uh, podcast in the middle of the day. Normally, um, uh, I do it in the evening, and it's kind of like a really nice way to wind down after working all day, making my products and whatnot. Um, so what, what I kind of like about this time period is I'm feeling very awake and refreshed, which usually by the time I get to, um, I've done my other interviews, which have started at like seven or nine um, or nine thirty in the evening. It's like okay, I'm looking forward to this, but I'm also okay. I'm not a spring chicken anymore, so I'm a little tired. So this kind of feels okay. like I feel very, very, very awake and present, and so this is nice. So I'm going to get the difficult questions today, huh? <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I can actually, I can actually think, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't really do the, the podcast in such a um, interview manner where it's like, okay, question, answer, question, answer. It's kind of, you know, um, a little bit of a prompt and, you know, everyone just starts telling their story and, uh, you know, so it's a little bit more like a, I, I kind of feel like it's a little bit more of a conversation as opposed to like uh, an interview. You know what I mean? So like no gotcha questions. No, you know, there's no Barbara Walters going on here. You know, not a problem. We're just chatting. We're just chatting. So, so yeah. So um, um, basically what, what I like to do with the podcast is really get to know the, the guest and my, and cause I mean, I love hearing about people. I love learning about their, their, their lives and whatnot. So I like to, you know, have everyone kind of start like, you know, um, that, that sort of seminal moment or those, those, those experiences that kind of led up to this, this point that set each person on their like magical or spiritual path and then just start from there and, and take it all the way to, you know, what you were doing 15 minutes ago. You know what I mean? Like the people and books that inspired you, uh, you know, people who have joined like magical orders or magical traditions stuff like that talk about stuff like that so um the best place to begin is the beginning so do you have that kind of 
you know, that seminal moment or those, those experiences okay. that kind of led up to like that, aha. This is Absolutely. This life is going. Absolutely. Mine, I love, I love the story and I very seldom ever tell it. Normally because if, depending on company, people don't necessarily appreciate where you're coming from with this. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure with your audience, they will understand completely. Absolutely. Uh, originally, I'm actually German, despite my accent being a Scottish one. And I ended up in Scotland as a, as a child and brought up in the west of Glasgow at a place where very close by, there was this piece of land which no one ever built on. And I would walk my dog on this piece of land every night, every morning. I just loved it. It had this wonderful feel to it. And I started getting interested in old Celtic ways, being in Scotland, the Scottish and Irish way of thinking about the she and about the language of the trees and about the tree alphabet was really quite dear to me. And I noticed in this place, there was every single one of the trees. And it, I took great delight in oh. this being there. And then when I was in the local library, I was looking through old books, old historical books, and I found that piece of land. It was a Druid's graveyard. Wow. And also had the largest sun temple in the whole of Europe. I had not known this prior to this. It was, it was massive, this. And before all the houses that were built around it, because it's at the top of a hill. Okay. It would look right down the Firth of Clyde, right down to the island of Arran, otherwise known as Evan Avlach, the island of apples, one of the ones on Maildun's voyage. Mm. And I could just imagine looking at the artist's impression of what this temple was like. And I found that it wasn't built upon because there were so many funerary urns buried in the ground. And the main road that was cutting through it also had, they were finding things there, but they had to just build this road. So okay. as they built the road, they had the archeologists in, and this is how all these discoveries were made. And one night, the full moon was just splendid. And as I was walking through a copse of willow trees, the moon had turned red. And I was remembering an old Fiona MacLeod, a poem at the children of of the crimson moon and all of a sudden like little buds at the end of all these uh, of the leaves of the willow trees all of a sudden there were these red lights that started to pulse wow and i was taken totally taken aback stunned and just agog that my dog at the same time was she was looking about as well thinking what's going on here she wasn't scared but it was just so, wow, this is crazy. And the following day, 
when I went to walk, I carried on to the other side of this main road where there was this old mine was there, an old metal mine. I think it was for tin and the shaft had gone down. And again, this is Stone Age type, Mm -hmm. early Iron Age, Bronze Age type mine. And I went round that to where there was an old house. And it was mostly dilapidated. The brickwork, well, not the brickwork, the blockwork was about early 1800s, if as late as that. I suspect it was earlier. And I was, because I had started reading so much on different occult topics, and especially witchy topics, I thought, oh, I'm going to look under the step to see if there's anything here. And there was a witch bottle. Wow. And that is what started me off on this wonderful yellow brick road to where we are at the moment. So do you still have that witch bottle? I wish I did. I don't anymore. I have no idea what happened to it. I've often thought about it. What exactly has happened? I suspect one of my moves in my 20s, because I used to work all up and down the west coast of Scotland through the Highlands and Islands. Okay. To such a degree, a number of bags and boxes of things I owned Mm -hmm. had magically vanished. Right. To escape me things, which is such a shame for that witch bottle. But I suspect uh, that's what's happened to it. So you were young at, at this period. Yeah, that's 14 years old. Okay. I was 14 okay. at that time. Wow. And then it just created on from there. And I did the usual path of what people do of thinking, okay, witchcraft, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Janet and Stuart Farrer were on television, and I thought, oh, wow, that's fantastic. I'm going to get the witch's way. And I was getting other things such as that, because when you're in your mid-teens and you start looking at magical grimoires or mm. Crowley or Arthur Edward Waite, uh, Goethe and things, and you start reading this, In all fairness, when you're 14, 15 years old, it doesn't exactly go in the mind the way it should do. Right. So you think, this is hard. So you put it on the bookshelf, in any case, for effect, and you read the witchy things, which makes sense. You grow up working in that, and then you realise, oh, I'm learning more and more. And... I would not like to say you become eclectic. I would say you become wiser. Right. There's a bit more Sophia entering the brain and the mind and heart. And you start to realize everything is the same. Just our path is what's different. It's what triggers us to do what we do for the benefit or otherwise of what's around us. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I was a teenager and I started getting into witchcraft and of course you find out about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So, and of course, when you're a teenager, you just want to consume everything. So, you know, every reference 
in, in a book to this or that. So I'm, I'm pulling in all of these new age um, elements as well. And I thought you had to kind of like do it all and put it all together. So I started buying books on the golden dawn. And again, like I started when I was 14. And like you said, at that age, you know, you open these books and you're like, I, this might as well be a completely different language. So, you know, they just sat on my bookshelves and wherever I moved, all my books come with me. So I've always had them. And it wasn't until like my mid twenties, mid to late twenties, um, that I started opening up the Golden Dawn books and everything made sense. The references and, and everything. It's like, oh, I know what, what that's referencing. I know, oh, this is, oh. And then it's like, oh, I get to explore this all over again. But yeah, as a teenager, yeah, no. Don't you find, don't you find with learning these things later and seeing why it's relevant and getting it, you're kind of glad as the 14 year old, you didn't get it and you didn't start to experiment with it at the time. Yeah, because if I, I think if I tried to really work through, through those books after realizing that they were nearly incomprehensible, I think I either would have been so frustrated with them that there was a chance that I never revisited those books as an adult or I didn't get frustrated. I did my best working through the Golden Dawn stuff. And because I was ill-prepared for that kind of work, I would have found it ineffectual and possibly as an adult, not revisit them, you know? Um, so I, I think... It was, it was just best that way, that as a teenager, it's like, I don't get this and just put it aside until that one day cracking open one of the books and, and being like, oh, I can read this. It's like between 14 and 25, I learned a, uh, a new language and I was able to finally read those books and, and understand them. So, yeah, I think, I think it was uh, the, the best way to go yeah yeah so janet and Stuart farr so um you're uh you're giving a hint to your age there <laughs> <laughs> yes one is older than one likes to let on but i'm not <laughs> ashamed of my age i am in my fourth century and i'm i think i'm looking pretty good for it for, for your fourth century, absolutely, absolutely. So back then, there wasn't the plethora of, of books available. I mean, like, especially, you know, pre-1980s, 1990s, where, you know, like the, the metaphysical books, magic books, witchcraft books really exploded. So you know, the, the pickings were, were slim. Um, now as a, as a teenager, I don't think you really, I, I don't think that really occurs to you like, Oh, there's, there's a, a, a lack of information, but um, how did that kind of, how did that affect 
your your direction. Okay, there are two different strands to this. Hmm. The first one is, I remember listening to a local radio station at night time. It was Halloween, hmm. and listening to this interview with the owner of an occult bookshop in the west end of Glasgow. And the gentleman being interviewed, Brian Booth was his name. And he, he sounded very knowledgeable. He put his points across really well, despite the interviewer almost hinting, but come on, tell us about child sacrifice. Right. Tell us about the altars with the naked virgins. Come on. Yeah. It was quite clever in how he asked it. It wasn't overt. But Brian Booth was very, very good in how he addressed it. And I thought, do you know what? I didn't know about this shop. I need to go and visit. So I went to visit. He was very helpful because he obviously knows when someone comes in and chats to them, what mm. their experience is, what they would perhaps learn more from reading. So if I was going to pick up Madame Blavatsky, Isis Unveiled, he would shake his head and say, no, Janet and Stuart Farrer, read that. I think you'll get more from that at the moment. Mm -hmm. And he was right. I took his advice and he was good with it. You're correct in saying there weren't the vast swathe of books on the shelves. There was really no internet at the time. So the amount of books you could read was few, but you got to realise that certain things, certain books that were being produced, for instance, Dion Fortunes, uh, Sea Priestess, followed by Moon Magic, Goat-Footed Lover, and so on, these contained full rituals. And mm -hmm. in the UK at the time, you could not produce a book on occult ritual. Right before a certain date. So they were written as novels. Yeah. And therefore, when I got to realize this, oh great, give me these to read. And the other strand of that, which I feel so lucky with where I am, with being in that area of Scotland at the time, I was very interested in the Gaelic language and mm -hmm. the old Gaelic goddesses and gods. And because of that, there are certain books, again, published, and I've got a large collection of them now from Victorian times to about 1910, Celtic antiquarian works from people such as Alexander Carmichael, um, got Rob, um, Robert Mackenzie, uh, you've got Fiona MacLeod, otherwise known as William Sharp, his real name who used Fiona MacLeod, so the gentleman of the day wouldn't read his works because, of course, you don't read a woman's work. You read a learned gentleman's work. Right. So these secrets he was imparting were going out to people and would continue to do so. Very clever of him to do this. Mm -hmm. But because of this, there are all these incantations, the old Celtic incantations and Gaelic using threads, using rowan berries, which, okay, for some, the language had changed over time to suit the Christian influence which came in. Mm -hmm. 
So you would have this lovely poetic Gaelic of a charm, a rune, an incantation, and at the end, in the name in the name of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and such and such, that does not go one, yeah. one iota. Yeah. But you learned these things looking at it, and you could then say, ah, now I know what that was before. Yeah. And because I've done the work to learn what a lot of these are, it's not something I impart to people because they can do their own work. Right. To find it, not that I'm being jealously guarding it, I felt the working it out made it special. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's why I do so. So that's the other strand that's there where these people, it's a bit like in the in Canada and going down Appalachia in the USA, certain people during the early 20th century went out to learn all the old folk tales and record them for posterity. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, history, folklore, our knowledge now would be so much poorer if these things didn't exist. And this was the Scottish and Irish version of it. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful to have these because one of them, for instance, when we think, think about, um, I'm trying to get the title of this book correct, The Commonwealth of Fairies, Elves and Fawns. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Secret Commonwealth by Robert Kirk. Where I used to live in Argyll, I used to live very close to where one of his churches was because he was a Church of Scotland minister. Right. And the Church of Scotland in general was considered very austere, very Protestantly austere. Mm-hmm. There is a joke in Scotland that the Church of Scotland banned sex standing up in case it led to dancing. <laughs> and, which kind of typifies what the church was about. <laughs> uh, he's a church of Scotland. <laughs> Sorry. I'll be quiet while you duff off. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, it, because he's a church of Scotland minister at the time, He's, he's seeing all these other world beings. He's recording what he's seeing. He's writing the legends, the myths of and the folklore of the place and making it into a very entertaining and absolutely engrossing narrative. Whilst his congregation is not terribly aware or his employer, the church, not very aware of what he was doing, And this is the 17th century Mm -hmm. when people are still burning witches in Scotland. Yeah. He's putting this out there. Mm -hmm. And one of his churches, beside it, there's this hill. It's called the Hill of the McLarens because that's whose clan land it's on. And this hill used to have Beltane fires lit all the way through into the 1800s that ancient ceremony was still conducted and the heroes of the Celtic warrior class would be going up to the top of these hills and lighting the Beltane fires on these Monroe mountains. They're not as big as some in where you are, Mm. but 
4,000 feet is quite a distance in anyone's language, 4,000 yeah. feet high. And you would have people like Rob Roy McGregor going up these mountains to Ben Ledy, the mountain of light, and lighting these fires up there. The boats were still going round to the funeral aisles, the Ennismorigan. They'd be going round three times and then burying a clan chief on there in the same way as the Vikings used to do. So there's huge crossovers there. And these books, these Victorian books, and earlier that were being produced, the absolute wonders that these give people is fantastic. Mm. And many people don't look for them simply because it's, I think it's classed as too wordy, it's too old fashioned and method of writing to understand. Yeah. Tell you what, so worth it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I don't know if you, if you can answer this, but you know, these, these Beltane ceremonies that continued on and existed up until the 1800s, were they very um, Christianized at that point or were they more like folk tradition where it wasn't like an act of pagan practice, but it wasn't really a Christianized religious ceremony either. It was just, this is what we've been doing for thousands of years and we're just continuing this. I Just think it was, an, I believe it was an accepted practice that mm. the church would accept for the simple reason when it comes to the Scottish and Irish lands in particular, there were very strong spirit and other world belief that still continues. And if you're in the right places at the right time, you still see it. Right. You will see the she on the air. Yeah. Because of this belief, the church would never be able to stamp it out. Yeah. And being very pragmatic over time, they accepted it and decided to change things. So instead of saying uh, to Bridget, it would be, Mother Mary, right. or St. Bridget. Right, right, right. So there, there was a level of Christianization of the... There was a level, Yeah, but the Roman Catholics had, because that was obviously the early church, mm -hmm. and they would, they just, ex okay, you can do what you're doing, but let's make a few changes to make it acceptable to us. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that permissible? Yeah. And they did that when the Church of Scotland came in, they were a bit stick in the mud, to put it mildly, apart from Robert Kirk, because one of the things they did in this Hill of the McLarens, one of the Victorian ministers, when he died, he was buried on the very top of it. So the Beltane fires, if they were going to be lit, they'd be, have to be lit over his dead body. Wow. Quite literally. So he had his big headstone on top of there to try and make it difficult for people to continue that practice. Huh. But that's, but they're still held. 
Yeah. Well, it was only what last year or the year before I read an article in, and this was somewhere in the North of Scotland and I can't remember the details, but there was something that was going to be done off the waters of the coast up North. And everyone's like, Oh, but the fairies, the fairies and the government put a kibosh on it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if it's 2020 or 2019, whenever it was, and everyone's like, yeah, but you can't do this because of the fairies. It's really no surprise that 150 years ago, they're still lighting Beltane fires, you know? Absolutely. And I remember I was visiting, this has got a tale within itself, so I'll try and curb it. Otherwise, I'll be talking forever. I was visiting a good friend of mine called Thorbjörg, who was a, a Norse shamaness, and she lived up near a place called Plockton. One of the places where the Wickerman film was filmed okay. was up there. And in the big house there, the grand piano is still there. And the music on the piano is, if you peer through the window, is here comes the Wickerman. Ah. It's still there from when the film was was made wow. with Christopher Lee. And she was up, she was up there and we'd we thought we'd have our Beltane fire on the beach. And she grew lots of strawberries. This was their thing. They made organic strawberries, her and her husband. Okay. And I didn't realize but her husband um, the story I was told <laughs> I've, I've got reason to, no, I'm not going to say anymore in case there's litigation, <laughs> that Toby had a special friend at one time and they would both sit and smoke certain substances. Okay. And due to the smoking of these substances and then talking and coming up with all sorts, the Discworld novels were created. So Terry Pratchett was his friend. Oh. And that was the origin of this world, was this. But that's an aside because the three of us went out to the, the beach. I say beach, is very stony and rocky. Right. And we created a big Beltane fire and we were going to jump over it, but we made it too big and we thought we'll just dance around it. Yeah. And we lit that fire, but all the way around the coast, because you've got all these little islands, you've got all these little inlets and so on. And one thing we saw, lots of fires around the coast. Oh, wow. And I I had found out in that trip as well, there are families up there who... Their belief system is still the old belief system. They have never integrated really with the current society. So it's a bit like when people imagine there's somebody living in the middle of the bush who still worships something old and the knock of a preacher has never reached their door. Right. These people are still there. Not many but they're still there. And I thought, wow, 
that's a beautiful thing to realize. Yeah, that's pretty. What we are all, what we are all rediscovering. There are some people of that origin still out there who yeah. haven't had to revisit because their family has always lived it. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And I mean, you know, a lot of the listeners or, or viewers of this episode. Um, you know, like I, I keep track of my analytics because my podcast is new and it's exciting to see, you know, uh, all of that and where people are, are listening from. And, you know, the majority come from Canada and the United States where we don't have that. We, we don't, you know, as Europeans in North America, we don't have that extended history so you know i i think a lot of people listening would would just find that just extraordinary um that idea of of people that never really integrated faith-wise with the larger society because we just don't have that that history you know um there is fantastic Okay, I'll tell you something you're perhaps unaware of. And there is, um, there is a really tantalizing piece of history. It's with Canada in particular, especially central Canada, because this refers to um, the, the Swampy Cree, really, to, as the, and the Cree tribes of Manitoba going into, going into Ontario and obviously across to Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. But there's a really interesting thing. When the Scots went over uh, as fur traders, as, as trappers and, and so on, um, back in the, what is it, the 16th, late 16th century, um, because the non-such was about late 15 something, I think, when it was at first arrived. But when the Scots who went across, they went across basically because of the Highland clearances. They were not welcome in Scotland with, from the British authorities because obviously Jacobites were defeated. Right. So their dress of wearing a kilt and tartan was banned. The mm -hmm. use of the Gallic language was banned. Yeah. And the use of indentured service, basically slavery for nine years, had been brought in unless you joined the Hudson Bay Company or the Northwest right. Company beforehand and you went across. But one of the things they found when speaking to the Cree was they had a similarity of certain words, which is stunning which ties both things together. And it gives such a wonderful thought of what might have been. Because when they're speaking about things on guess, head, heads and so on, trying to rudimentary language, the Scottish word for foot is moccasin. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, isn't it just? Huh. Where did it come from? <laughs> well, I suppose, um, I mean, because we know the Vikings were here in North America 
a lot earlier than Columbus. Maybe who knows? Who knows? It's not a, it's some Scottish words have Viking or Western Norse influence in them, mm-hmm. but that is a pure Gallic word. Okay. Okay. It has no Norse in it at all. Huh. So yeah, that makes you think. Yeah. I mean, okay. I think there's, there's a lot more to human history than we know, you know, because we just think it's so incomprehensible that someone can get into a canoe and cross the ocean. Mm-hmm. But we know it's it's been done, like Pacific Islanders, you know, that's that's how they do things. Um, you know, so I, I just I think there's more there's more to human history than we know. Um more connections and you know just for uh some of the listeners uh you you brought up the hudson bay company so that was set up back in the early or mid 1600s um as uh, a trading company um between here and and britain here canada i mean um and it still exists it's the oldest um uh canadian company um it, it still exists like it's yeah. a, it's a department store chain now well you would know that because you've been uh yeah Canada. um but uh um, it's it's a, it's a department store chain now and it still exists yeah yes i love the store it was too yeah. expensive <laughs> but i love the store and i'm very lucky i have one of the i have an old hudson bay blanket oh coat. yes yeah, I've, yeah, I've, yeah. Actually, I've got one, and in one of my stage presentations, I use it on stage oh. because I speak about the early, the early Scots who went across, who were performers, and is how you started getting the early circuses and early sideshows started to happen, right? Because of people who came from, say, Orkney Islands here. Mm-hmm. So when I was performing in at Stromness in the Orkneys, they loved the fact I could draw together the Hudson Bay Company history going between Orkneys and across to across in Canada, which right. they thought was fantastic. And especially as where I was Forming a lot of the time when in Canada was around was around Winnipeg, right? Which so, isn't far but, from. That's only an eight-hour drive from where I am right now. Which anyone from the UK, trust me, that's not far. Yeah. Oh right, yeah, uh, yeah. So an eight-hour drive to people in the UK, like that's really cross-country. An eight-hour yeah, drive what, here in Canada is a nice little afternoon jaunt. Really. Yeah. 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 Because one of the places that I've, you know, I make a lot of jewellery. Mm-hmm. I think you've seen some of it. Yeah. The gold from that jewellery, some of it comes from a place called Helmsdale here, which is where all the uh, Selkirk settlers that ended up around the Winnipeg area, that's where they came from. They were basically oh. uprooted from Helmsdale and across to there. Uh, so, and, and we have a city there called Selkirk. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, a lot of my family, uh, my on my father's side, because there's lots of French uh, over there. Um, I'm um, French, on my father's side, French-Canadian. And it's his first language. 
Um, so lots of relatives over in that area uh, around mm -hmm. South Kirk. Yeah. So the Orkney Islanders loved the fact you could draw in some of the history, the spooky history from here mm -hmm. and the sideshow history, the fortune telling that happened here, the second sight, and then make it grow up in the new world in, in Canada and trace it as part of the show and demonstrations that were part of it, uh, which is super. And the fact that that old Hudson Bay blanket jacket was on stage and it's a very old blanket. I don't know how old it is, but the inside of it has been changed several times. So I'm pretty sure it is 19th century, although I can't prove it. Right, but right. I'll never part with it. It's just too precious oh, I don't an artifact to have. How do you, do you know this? I don't know if you, you if you would know this, but how were the Scottish people perceived by the Indigenous people? Like, I mean, we have a very complicated history with colonialism and, and whatnot yeah. um, here, of course. Um, but, you know, like you have like the Scots and the Irish that weren't treated well by the Brits back in the day um, is for the Scots that, that came here to Canada, was there a sort of um, um, I don't know, like a comradeship between them and the indigenous people, you know, I, like, well, I think to a degree there was, yeah. And not universally, mm -hmm. but I believe there was um, more so for the simple reason the Scots and Irish that went across, particularly Scots, they were the trappers. They were the people out in the, out in the bush. And therefore, this is how the Métis came about. Because the French as well, mm -hmm. it's because they would marry someone they probably had a wife back in Scotland or back in Nantes or wherever in France. Yeah. But the men who came out, they would marry somebody who was in one of the local, uh, one of the local nations. And essentially this was their country wife, mm -hmm. as the description was. And sadly, um, some of the, some of the nations thought that you're besmirching our blood and the Western powers thought that about the Scots or French who did the same, which is why the Métis just became a law unto themselves. And I have nothing but admiration from for them. They were not going to be stamped upon by either. Yeah. Um, so they secured their own um, existence. So brilliant. So they were ones in the field and you can either try and take over and make life hard or you can try and get on with people. Yeah. And the Scots more so, whilst a Scottish person will cause an argument in an empty room, they are also <laughs> the first to make friends with somebody as well. Right. So I think that's partly it. <laughs> 
Oh, and one other thing, which I find really quite exciting. Now, the person whose name, I do not know the name. I cannot remember it. But there's a church in Dumfries in the south of Scotland, which is uh, called Greyfriars Church. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, sorry, St. Michael's Churchyard. I'm thinking Edinburgh. Uh, Greyfriars Churchyard in, in Dumfries. It's where the poet Robert Burns's mausoleum is. But the son of one of the ministers there went out as an officer in the British Army to be, uh, to be in, well, this, in the, trying to think, is one of the companies that Charles II had set up. It's much later. It's during Victorian times, really early Victorian. Okay. And he was in one of the officers in charge of this fort. And... A really harsh winter had hit. A lot of indigenous people were in the fort and the fort officers decreed this food is for the British people. The indigenous people can just starve. Mm. Um, this Scottish man decided I'm not having that. And he basically put the officers under lock and key and gave the vast majority of people who were indigenous, mm -hmm. he gave them the food so that everyone would survive. Now, he was censured quite radically, but I think that's quite a heroic act. Absolutely. And I think you remember the accent of the people who have been good to you mm. and with you. He wasn't acting like a charity worker because I often think sometimes that can be seen as you're handing down to somebody, mm. but he worked with people. He was one of them. They were one of his kind as well. So that's kind of um, the way a lot of Scots who entered Canada early on, how they acted and how they behaved. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the main Métis leaders, Cuthbert Grant, um, I took several people from Winnipeg to the graveyard where his father and his brothers are buried up, up in the northeast of Scotland, near Elgin. So I took them up, up there. There's, there's big crossovers right. in many things. And I think it's one of the reasons a lot of Scottish people in particular are drawn to Indigenous belief is because they see a similarity, they see right. a resonance. And I think it's something which has traveled through the blood yeah. as well. One of the things which makes me think about this is now we're coming fairly close to up to date now, I suppose, is 1923 in Winnipeg on Henderson Highway, there is the Henderson House. And this house had lots of seances at the time where you would have banks of cameras. Now, bearing in mind, cameras are this size right. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got the 30 cameras in a bank. And considering the amount of flash powder that was used, it must have been <laughs> like a firework display. Yeah. And this was used during seances there. Um, Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was involved in these seances in, in this Hamilton house. And note I say Hamilton house, 
Oh, right. Yeah. My relations. Right, right, right. From so wait, 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 wait. Uh, this house is where? On Henderson Highway in Winnipeg. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was in Canada? Yeah, he did a tour of sale of seances and famous mediums. Oh, I didn't know that. No, oh no, he was very big. One of my very first stage shows, I just called 1923, and a lot of it was based around the spirit phenomena experienced in the Hamilton seances and from the Marlborough Hotel in the Merchant District of Winnipeg because that place is haunted like nothing on earth. I mean, they don't need staff for the sheer amount of spirit activity there. Wow. But there is such a big tie-in between uh, the Scots and Canadians, the Indigenous people there in so many different ways. It's a weave, a bit like the Voyager's sash. I like to think of it like that. It mm -hmm. weaves together beautifully, all of them together. Yeah, yeah. I that's wonder, partly what drives. you know, you said, you know, it, it, it's in the blood. I do wonder, like, you know, if it's if it's a, a racial memory, you know, uh, with with the Scottish people, like this is this is this is how we were, you know, before, and 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 kind of wanting to recapture that or, you know, um, bring that that magic back into their lives. Yeah, well, I'll tell you something I do in my espiritism performance. Mm. I use a lot of mesmerism in it. I don't like hypnosis. I use mesmerism. Okay. And this. And one of the things I found I can do, putting someone in a mesmeric trance, and I believe it's the, um, call it folk soul, call it residual family memory, mm -hmm. whatever you wish to call it, because there's so many different names for the same thing. Right. I have, I inquire about the people in the audience. Um, sometimes beforehand, and I'll do it discreetly, it's not to find something out I can use in a larcenous way. Right. But I simply wish to find if somebody has a history or family history that involves particular foreign countries. Okay. And what I then do is I have uh, pieces of card um, a bit like the size of this pack of tarot. And I have a word in that in a particular language. The last time I did this, I used Russian. Okay. So I've got several different cards of different languages there. And I have someone up on stage, put them into the mesmeric trance. The audience obviously sees this and sees the words in, in Russian. And I give it to this person who swears they can't speak Russian. Although their ancestors did. And I, I ask them, read that. What does it say? And they will say, understand. 
Next card, uh, blue, it's the color blue, but it's all in Russian is what they're reading, but they're interpreting it through that residual memory of hundreds of years to read it in English today. That's fascinating. Isn't it? And people are seeing this in front of them and the person it's happened to, they're, 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 they're basically in tears because they've, it's so profound. Yeah. Brought this up from some part of their spirit, their soul, a residual memory within the body, wherever it's come from. And they can then speak or understand the way their ancestors can do. Right. So their subconscious has done this, but their conscious mind trying to interpret it obviously can't say it in Russian right. because they don't actually know it yeah. in their conscious self. So they express it in English. So I feel like I, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, once you take them out of the mesmeric trance, they can't look at those words and be like, oh, I know what that is. No, like, they, and once they're out of the trance, they're seeing they're, it in Russian. They're done. Yeah, they're done. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of figured that's that's how it how it was going to play out. When did you start doing performances like these types of performances? And 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 we'll definitely talk about you know like everything you do on stage. But when did that all begin? Um, it was. It's no secret, dear viewer watching this, that I'm transgender, and when I changed. Prior to changing to be who I needed to be, I was a fortune teller. I, I did all various different uh, psychic services for people. Okay. And then when I changed, lots of things changed. And I thought, I need to do this on stage and explore our psychic senses, what people have the power to do, and to do it in a different way. Mm. Not to do it as if, let's explore this scientifically. Right. Which, yeah, you can check on stage scientifically. What I'm doing, you can do. You know, Karen, hold on a Okay, now the dogs are taken care of. Sorry about that. I'll continue no on. No problem. No, I felt I needed to change how to demonstrate psychic arts, how to show there was more to the world in a more entertainment-based setting because people want to believe, people want to see, they want to experience. And... So, Let's face it, sitting in a laboratory with people wearing white jackets, white coats, doing lab tests is not going to cut it. Right. So if you do it as a theatre experience or do it as, let's say, one of the ways I've changed it is to make several different types of demonstration performance. So one is on the history of witchcraft. Okay. One is on 
um, seances and fortune telling. Espiritism is another one which is a bit of, it's more of an entertainment extravaganza as opposed to let's give you lots of interesting information here as well. Mm -hmm. So it's where I can do things such as mesmerism in the performance without, because if you, if I put my talking teeth in, if I were going to do this in one of the other performances, it wouldn't fit because obviously there's a flow because I'm presenting it with an entertainment vibe. I like to think of it as the old fashioned BBC viewpoint of to educate and entertain. So that's what I'm trying to do. And the one which I've just started doing now, well, I've not performed it yet. At the end of the year, I will be in the, opera, the old operating theater in London doing the first performance of Jekyll and Hyde to where the story from Robert Louis Stevenson came from and all those strands put together, which involves devil worship, science, alchemy, robbery, witches. There's so much in there and even mesmerism and spiritualism in that tale too. So all of that, it just is the way in which to present it to people so they know the history where appropriate, they understand it. And the important thing is, and this has happened beforehand, one of my audience did not realize I was standing behind them in the center of Glasgow one day. And they were saying to each other, they were looking at a road sign, saying, see that, see him. Uh, and they were speaking all about the person in the road sign because I saw this woman who was talking about it and see the stuff, see the stuff this person had did. And they recounted the history perfectly. So the importance of telling the history in such a setting means people get it. Yeah, right. And that can be important, especially with things like witchcraft. Because so many people today think, ah, no smoke without fire, though. They must yeah. have been doing something. Yeah. And when you have people in an audience, in one particular audience, I had people come up to me at the end of the presentation, which includes using things such as using witches' effigies, because I have actual historical effigies. Okay. Heck, I even use a real hand of glory. I have one of them in my private museum. Wait, you have a genuine hand of glory. I have a genuine hand of glory. It's wow. in my private museum. Wow. I'll send you a picture of it. Oh, later. I want to see it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Not for broadcast. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But um, if you wish to see it, folks, come and see one of the performances. There we go. Got a That's bit of marketing. <laughs> However, on one of these, the Witches of Pollock performances, at the end, people came up who had said, I didn't realise that about what had happened to witches, about who they were, the poor, poor people, women of a certain age who were looking after children, things happened to the children, just because they were ill. Yeah. Um, and so many other things. But people of a number of different religions 
came up to me to say that. There would be, as you would expect, pagans and Wiccans mm-hmm. and witches, as you would imagine. But I had Satanists. I had Muslims, Jewish people. I had um, Sikhs there. I also had Roman Catholics there. Uh, old Roman Catholics who were in their 90s. Okay. Who, and I was so surprised when they said they were in their 90s. And they would say, I've always thought these were bad people. Right. But I now know I feel dreadful for what happened to these people. It's a way in which to get the real history, entertaining manner, doing psychic experiments that echo of the time, using the the witch's effigies, both a wax doll and a clay one, Mm-hmm. using the hand of glory, using witches' flying ointment in it as well. So we use the, all of those kind of things in that performance. So people then think, wow, I've just been taken back to the 17th century. I've seen all about this. I understand it. Right. From that immersive experience. And I've seen why people might think these people were using these particular arts to heal, to cure, or to maim, because they've seen experiments with it Mm -hmm. that evening. And this is where it makes the big difference. And people can, can know what happened in their locality, which is a beautiful thing too. Yeah. So... I've not done that presentation in North America yet, say yet. I've been hired to do it, but COVID has kind of got in the way. Yeah. And when you do it with the fortune telling and the seance side, again, I've done that in North America. I did that in Baltimore. And again, people understand it in their own context and they the term understands the right the right one you can read it in a book you can learn the facts but unless you have the feeling you've walked those miles in those shoes you can't really be authoritative upon it to others so when someone has for instance a churchy type in front of them no offence if someone is churchy type. I say that in the not in disrespect, but thinking of someone who is very dictatorial. This is what we think, and anything like witchcraft is very bad. You can't do this mm-hmm. because they don't. These people do not understand what it was about and what the times were about. Right. Why the punishments of burning at the stake were there because they thought the Bible said burn the person. They weren't looking at it correctly. Mm-hmm. They weren't seeing the right things. They didn't understand King James when he was putting these diktats in, why he was being bloodthirsty towards witches or, a, or people believed he was. He was actually trying to be kind. He wasn't the sharpest tool in the toolbox, <laughs> but he was attempting to not have 
lots of people murdered. Mm -hmm. There needed to be evidence and proof. He just didn't bank on the fact which prickers and which finders out there would use trickery and chicanery to find people guilty. Yeah, yeah. Do you... Now, I assume that most Scottish people are aware of, you know, the witch hunts as existing in, in Europe and, and in Scotland. But is the average Scottish person, do you think, are they aware of how especially brutal they were mm. in Scotland? Because, I mean, if you take the numbers in Scotland and compare them to England, it's two completely different worlds. Yeah. Or do, the, do you think they have a, 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 like, is there a general understanding that they were pretty, it was a pretty brutal time in Scotland in particular? No, I think most people, if they are not aware, if they're coming along to see one of the demonstrations thinking, this is a piece of interesting entertainment, let's go and see this. If they're not knowledgeable about the history of it, or in, in any sense, they just think Britain was the same. People right. were burned at the stake everywhere. They're not terribly aware that in Scotland, you did not torture someone in Scotland, not physically torture where they did in England. But in Scotland, you were burned at the stake, whereas in England, you were hung. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, you were on the ducking stool and you died underwater yeah. to save your family some shame. So they weren't terribly aware of this. And even with the burning at the stake, people are not terribly aware. They tend to think of it in the sanitized lens of Hollywood, that a burning of the stake is always nice bunches of straw and hay. And then you've got twigs and bundles of, of logs there. And then there's the stake in the middle, the woman in the long white dress and tied with her hands at the back and her hair blowing in the wind. First of all, her hair would not be blowing in the wind because it would have been all cut off right. to dehumanize her. After all, if she does not look like your neighbor, it's not your neighbor being burned at the stake. Right. And then with them being tied there, the average pyre consisted of coal, tar, wood, straw, peat, so basically turf. Mm -hmm. So it was part burning, well, part barbecue and part road building project. Yeah. Really, that's what they were being burned on. And they're not aware of this. So yeah. they get told this during it. I mean, it's not a complete shock fest. This is how terrible things were. We do it entertain in an entertaining fashion. So it so when you leave, you'll sleep. Right. But you'll have been entertained and you will have got some good knowledge and info. But they definitely don't realize that one in five of people burned at the stake in Scotland was male. Yeah. They always think it's only women. No, it's it's actually one in five was, was male. And the fact that now figures on how many people have been killed vary depending on source and what people believe. Mm -hmm. Personally, I think about 9,000 
Scots were burned at the stake. And in England, it was 400 were hung. Yeah. So yeah. Vast difference, but most people aren't aware of it. And especially of the, what I consider the cute points of the, what was on the pyre, tar and coal. I mean, it's an oven, yeah. really. Yeah. But people aren't aware of this. I call them cute points because when people hear that, they think they know it. And then when that dawns on them, you see it in the eyes. Oh my giddy aunt, that's horrendous. Yeah. They get it. Yeah. Those are the things that make the difference. Yeah. Now that um, just, you know, as a point of interest um, for the listeners, that wasn't the standard um, um funeral pyre for you know throughout all of Europe they you know every region had their their different ways of doing it like some places they instead of like a pile of of wooden sticks by the stake they had a ring so it was another like in Scotland where really the the victims were cooked by having this ring of fire this ring of wood around the stake the fire cook them it didn't burn them you know but there but there were places where they were literally on a pile of burning sticks and it was very quick still painful um it was it was very quick so i mean there was different ways of burning throughout europe and and throughout you know different eras as well um there was just different ways of doing it but all completely horrendous for the 60,000 some odd people that were actually executed of witchcraft absolutely 400 year time period i know um you know in 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 the the witchcraft and and wiccan and neo-pagan community the the number nine million gets gets bandied about and um a couple years ago i decided i would um research i was kind of curious i'm like where did that number come from because i know that's not accurate. Nine million people were not killed in that 400 period, 400 year period. Um, so I thought I was going to trace it back to like the 60s, you know, uh, neo pagan uh, movement. And it kept going further back from that. I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe um, uh, Margaret Murray and her. Um, witch cults in in western europe book nope that's nazi propaganda if you can believe it that's wow. Nazi propaganda um because the nazis uh a lot of them were very you know pagan and and you know blood and soil and and blah 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 blah, blah. and there's a speech that i found where they were decrying the 9 million um, uh, people killed by the Semitic church, you know, because the the Jews were behind the Christian church secretly, of course, to the Nazis. And all of the, you know, the shame, how it's a shame all of those pure-blooded Aryan German women were put to death by the 
by the conniving uh, Semitic Catholic church or uh, Christian church, blah, 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 blah. And I can't trace it farther back than, than the, now I'm not a professional researcher. I'm not an academic, so it could possibly predate the Nazis, but the whole Nazi ideology goes back far into the 1800s. Oh yeah. You know, with like the, the proto uh, Nazi uh, groups and, and whatnot. And that, um, that very, uh, um, uh, Volkish. And ruins and yeah. So, so, so I'm I'm fairly confident after trying to find the source of this number nine million um, that so many neo pagans love to bandy about. I'm fairly confident that it doesn't predate Nazi propaganda. Um, so yeah. Anyways, FYI, people, that nine million is complete bullshit. It's more like. 60,000 people actually killed yeah. or tried more arrested and more tried for witchcraft, but about 60,000 actual yeah. um, uh, executions. And that's maybe doesn't sound as dramatic as 9 million, but that's still 60,000 innocent souls in a 400 year period, which is pretty shameful. Absolutely. And considering the amount of people that existed in these countries at the time, for instance, the Scottish number, considering how many people lived in Glasgow at the time, at the very start of when I do my Witches of Pollock, I ask people, do they, are they left-handed? Are they, do they actually read fortunes? Are they over 60 years old? Have you had an argument with your neighbour? <laughs> and so they all put their hands up. I say, well, congratulations, you're the ones who would be burned at the stake. Because yeah. those are the very reasons. And when speaking about the numbers, I always say to them, considering Glasgow's population at the time was 36,000 people, this is an audience of 100 people. Therefore, four of you would be getting burned at the stake mm -hmm. as a percentage. Yeah four of you and again people get it yeah wow they understand what that's thinking oh well that's the amount of people being referred to seeing sixty thousand. well that's a small town somewhere out of this great big country no a lot less people at the time therefore yep. it's pretty major and it's yep. got to be seen through that lens absolutely but one thing you mentioned and I'm glad you mentioned it because you mentioned the propaganda through Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. There is one character during that time that appears in some of my performances. I knew who you're talking about. Yeah, Eric. Yeah. Eric Jan Hanussen. And the great thing about what some of the things that he was involved in he was a showman. He was a mm -hmm. sideshow artist. He worked with fakery, but he did real as well. Yeah. He, he worked on both sides. And I know some people dislike that. Personally, I don't. He was showing psychic ability and uh, powers in an entertaining way. Mm -hmm. And if sometimes he needed some skullduggery, 
to hell with it. He was yeah. good at what he did. Yeah. Great. But he had the fact he was Jewish. He was the best friend of the Nazi high command yeah. because he had all these powers. He had a best-selling German newspaper. He mm -hmm. was touring the world. He'd done Hitler's horoscope. The Nazi high command wanted him to just profess all this great stuff. His Palace of the Occult in Berlin and his reading chamber where all these people would come in. It'd be dark at night and the candlelit. He had a throne at one end and the throne went through the floor. He would be on the throne under the floor and then this pneumatic pump underneath would send his throne but. 15 feet into the air to tower above these people as he's there in oriental garb, yeah. his crystal ball in his hand pointing to them, giving all these professing uh, pontific, not pontifications, all these prophecies. It sounds high theatre, and it was, but a lot of what he said came true. Yeah. Eerily so. But one of the things that he did, and I love this, one thing, a bit beforehand, there was an English professor, well, we're talking 1931, Harry Price, who as a psychic investigator from England and also a member of the Magic Circle, he had found an, an, a library, I think it was Oxford University Library, this ritual, which, because I'm speaking about it just now, the ritual name has slipped straight out of my head, so I apologize. But he'd found this ritual, which was conducted on Brocken Mountain in the Hartz Mountains in Germany, where at Walpurgisnacht, all the German witches would fly around on their broomsticks. And this ritual was there to turn a goat into a man. Mm a supreme power of how to show magical wizardry for real. And Harry Price was there, he had, the media was there filming him. And at that time, to film was actual film yeah. and it was pretty expensive. Yeah. So if you were covering something, it had to be special. Yeah. So he did this ritual and nothing happened. And he was basically sent back to England with otherwise he would have been found somewhere. He was persona non grata. Right. And then the Nazi high command said to Hanussen, can you do this? Can you make it work? And nonchalantly, as was his way, of course I can. Of course I can. So, because Hitler and Cohen, Himmler had had their rune magicians trying to do this of course it wouldn't work and Hanussen yeah not a problem take me to Brocken <laughs> so the filming um, Lenny Riefenstahl she was there doing the filming at this I've seen some of the film oh but it seems to have vanished now I've tried to find it again okay it seems to have vanished the stills of, you can find stills of it online. Mm -hmm. And I've got some stills of it. 
so he goes on to there and he's in his top hat, bow tie and tail. Oh, you just froze. I think I lost you, Kara. I'm going to hit pause here for a second. Okay, so I don't know where you were when, like how far you kept going after you froze there. Um, I remember you speaking to me, so I'll start from where that speech was, because obviously there was communication there. Yeah, okay. Yes. So Hanusen said, yeah, of course I can do this. And the Nazi High Command had their runic magicians trying to make this ritual work, and of course it wouldn't work. So Hanusen said, yeah, not a problem. So Lenny Riefenstahl, the famous uh, filmmaker of the uh, Nuremberg rallies and 1936 Olympics, she was doing the filming. And Hanusen was there in his top, top hat, bow tie and tails, his cape. And he had the beautiful German virgin there in a the tight silver lamy dress. I emphasize that for a reason which will become apparent. Okay. So they're ringed with SS and obviously they're armed. You have media, you have Nazis and so on there. And Hanusen in the middle, loving it, does the ritual. And at one, this one point, the goat all of a sudden is in the middle of this cloud of fire, it's just a blink of an eye, this big, almost like magnesium being burned at the top of a old fashioned camera, just for a split second. And the goat is gone. <laughs> and here's this small German man yeah. in lederhosen. <laughs> and his hat with the feather in it. <laughs> and the reason I mention about the woman wearing the tight silver lamy dress is because magicians who speak about this as in ones who are using rabbits and hats and things they always say oh well of course under cover of the, the flame she put the goat under her dress right i defy anyone to do that in a tight silver lamy dress yeah yeah it's impossible. Um, and I've given it a lot of thought. And any magician, as in the, as I say, the type who like the rabbits and hats, if they've read into it properly, they will all say, I've got no idea how it could be done. Mm -hmm. So it's one of these beautiful moments in occult history that people want to believe was done in um, conjuring. But was it? It's one of these things that will be left open. Yeah. Door is always open to conjecture. Yeah. Yeah. But because then, it was being filmed all around. And then eventually Hitler had him killed. Yeah, realizing, hang on a minute, he's, he's actually Jewish. It was actually said the fact it was a small... A Bavarian man in lederhosen looking mad that came 
out of the flame, it was Hannison's joke that it was Hitler. Oh, oh. You know, there is there is a complicated, I mean, we're not going to get into the, you know, history of, of the Nazis and, and occult and, and all that. Because, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, people, you know, take a historical um, event and, and kind of try to make it, you know, black or white. And that's just not reality. So, you know, like the... The Nazis, there a lot of the top Nazis were pagan and they were into the occult, but at the same time, they're they're shutting down fortune tellers and occult groups. And so well, no, they weren't into the cult. They shut down these occult groups, these occult groups that weren't, you know, giving Hitler like loyalty. Oh, surprise. You know what I mean? It's, it's very convoluted, but the Nazis and the occult are really, really intertwined enmeshed. Yeah. And people like Knudsen, um, that weren't, you know, there was, there was a lot of occultists and, and scientific astrologers as opposed to the, you know, um, uh, common fortune telling uh, astrologers um, weren't Nazis, weren't into the ideology, but liked having a job and liked not being sent to concentration camps. So they're like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely work for you guys for sure, because I want to stay alive. You know, um, it, it's very complicated. It, you know, it, it's easy to be like, okay, well, all of these occultists that worked with the SS and whatnot, they're all Nazis and they're all horrible people. And it's just, it's not that simple. No, it's a lot of people think that Hanussen must have been a terrible person and didn't like his Jewish history, Mm -hmm. his heritage, but virtually everyone who worked for him was Jewish. It was simply, he was too well known. It's a bit like saying today that Uri Geller, if Uri Geller we had one of these great big, uh, the Nazis about just now, and Uri Geller was in Germany. Would he be able to get a, get away and escape? No, there'd be a bullet or a knife in the night somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And it was the same with Hanussen. Yeah. He knew it. So he just had to play it for all it was worth and hope he got out the other side. Yeah, which obviously he didn't. Which he didn't, you know. And I think, I'm. I mean, his 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 Jewishness obviously played a, a part in that. But I mean, he he knew too much, you know. He was definitely a threat, and uh, he served his purpose. And you know, sadly, um, he served his purpose and had to be disposed of. So he got a bullet in the head in out in the forest absolutely yeah okay so on that <laughs> depressing note we got a um, we got a we got a live in live in the the podcast back up again so um uh i want to keep talking about your your performances because they're fascinating um like are you uh uh like a one woman show or is there a team how, or sometimes it's just you, sometimes you have a team or, you know, yeah. 
some most of the time it's it's me there is another person involved occasionally but that is depending on what the performance is and because i don't want to just do one thing i want to try and liven it up at particular bits for instance i say no one is going to jump out at you this is not that kind of performance we're mm -hmm. professional so of course i've got a witch that jumps out at everybody of course shouts and screams at them <laughs> i naturally do that i say you promised yeah <laughs> <laughs> so there's it depends on what it is yeah. Which obviously depends upon the budget of the place as well. Right. Bringing in filthy money. But I obviously, if I have people involved, if we are working, say, in Aberdeen in the north of Scotland or in Newcastle in the north of England or London, I've got to pay for that person to be there mm -hmm. and their hotel room and so on as well. So it needs to be able to pay for them to be there yeah. otherwise i have to restrict it's not a case of someone gets a worse show yeah it's a case of we redress it a bit every performance will vary slightly mm -hmm. so if someone has seen me a year before the show they see the year later will have enough difference in it for them to have not sat through the same thing, they've enjoyed it again, but they've seen new things, they've heard right. new things. So it depends on so many different factors. If it's me or a team of people, the team of people's good, I must admit. Seeing yeah. the audience leap out their seats and fright is fantastic. So <clears throat> did you kind of have like a, I don't want to say like a standard show, but you know, this is, this is my performance and from A to Z. And as you say, things will change up a bit, or do you have them very theme? Like, like this show is about X, this show is about Y, you know, how, how, how did, how do you put them together like that? They're themed to a degree and the way they're themed is pretty simple. The way in which I weave the tempo of the show, because you've got a bit of nice, good information. Let's mm -hmm. have a bit of excitement. Let's bring you back down. Let's make you think and feel sad. Then let's bite you up again. Right. So you be, if you play it that way to make it flow in, in a really entertaining fashion, then what I do in Glasgow, the meat on the bones of the information about the Pollock witches, that bit in the Pollock show, when I'm doing Witches of London in October, the London equivalent, the Witches of London, will be in that slot. Okay, yeah. So I'll put, the system works. The flow works. Do hmm. so I just take the Witches of Pollock things out and I put the London bits in right. or the Leicester things or, or the Winnipeg or whatever, I make sure I just change it to what is in the area in which I'm performing it. Okay. When so I was that's just, basically... 
Okay. So, you know, as you were saying that I had formulated a question in my head and you kind of answered it when you said Winnipeg, when you're over here in North America, are like, th- there's no, the witches of, of Winnipeg in the same way, like, you know, like having like that rich history of, of witchcraft or supposed witchcraft in Europe. So how does being in North America, um, change you know the the show in that regards well there are particular areas where there is history where you can draw upon the eastern seaboard in other words the old new world is Mm. the prime place where you get the most work on it so when i've done this in baltimore that worked a trait um, I was going to New Orleans to do it. Obviously, great for it. Yeah. But obviously, COVID got in the way of that. And then going up to New England and Maine to do it as, as well, which is meant to be August. Now, when you put all of those places together, you can do it. Mm-hmm. If you then decide you want to go and do uh, Yellowknife, Saskatoon, uh, San Francisco, it's a lot harder. Yeah. And in all honesty, it has to be geared more towards the spirits of the tenements, the seance, the fortune telling, and going into the spiritism. Right. Uh, you know, it needs to be more of that than the way of speaking about people being burned on stakes and so yeah. on because it ain't going to wash there, because that's not the history. You have to be loyal to the history of the place so that whoever's being at the show, they see their own history Mm -hmm. being played legitimately in that way. Unless, of course, I'm doing the Witches of Pollock somewhere in North America, say Phoenix, Arizona, Mm -hmm. if I do it there. It's got no resonance there whatsoever, but I can draw into it the Highlander aspects because of the um, popularity of Outlander. Right, right. I can bring some of that in so that people have seen that on television. It's of interest to them. They love it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they want to see about the spooky things that happened at that time. Right. And therefore, that works. But it's a case of being, not trying to say to someone, as I say in San Francisco, oh, the old witch's coven here of 1795 and just telling flim flam. Yeah. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So once COVID is over and done with, you're going to be taking a trip here because you have, like you have shows lined up here in North America. Yeah. Yeah. I've got shows lined up for August. I am unsure how that will work. If I will be able to do it because COVID is lingering here with new variants that um, we thought were 
done and gone because I was about to book my tickets mm-hmm. and realised, well, at the moment, I am not allowed to travel to right. North America. And it's just awkward. So if I can do it via Zoom, I'll do it. But I so wish to be back in front of North American audiences because they're super. Yeah, I love performing in front of North American audiences. The ones in Baltimore were great. I, I loved them in Winnipeg when I was working in Saskatchewan. All of that was fantastic. I want to get back to it. I've still to be to go to Toronto mm-hmm. and I've only ever seen the airport there. So I want to do a performance there. Yeah. And of course, I've heard the center of the universe is a place called Thunder Bay. Of course. Absolutely it is. It's all happening here in good old Thunder Bay. And I've my plane has been over it. So I've seen it from above. <laughs> <laughs> that's I wave. Best. You didn't that's, see. Yeah, that's the best way to see it. It's nice. It, it's nice here. I mean, it's uh, it's a small city. It's we have uh, like a hundred thousand people. I mean, it's not it's not very big. It's pretty. Um, we're right on Lake Superior. Um, it's just we're so remote. You know, um, the, yeah. the closest um, big city uh, in Canada would be Winnipeg, which is an eight hour drive away west of here. If you drive eight hours east, you hit Sault Ste. Marie, which is a little smaller than Thunder Bay. And if you drive four hours south, you can hit Duluth, Minnesota in the States. Um, It's just, it's, yeah, it's, you know, the thing I I keep saying remote, I, I almost make it sound like it's one of, you know, the northern towns that are like accessible only like from a logging road or something but you know like I spent most of my adult life um in big cities like like Houston or Toronto or Ottawa especially like Houston's great like living in Texas was great because I mean there's no crappy winter weather so any time of the year you can just get in your car and be like oh I'm going to drive an hour and end up in this town or that town, or, you know, there's everything was just so accessible and just go when there's somewhere else to be. That's, you know, not too far of a drive away. Whereas here, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, in in the middle of February, the worst of winter, be like, Oh, I'm going to get in my car and drive to Sault Ste. Marie because I don't want to die in, you know, driving through the Canadian shield driving off a cliff you know so <laughs> it's it this is a nice city i grew up here um it's just you know it is what it is it is what it is yeah i mean you'd have a great uh very big very receptive audience here um for your show you know it's it's uh like that would go over well um, mm-hmm. but yeah, you know, there's one thing I never mentioned mm. and I'm going to talk about it cause I'm still not going to mention it. I know that sounds backwards. Right. I realize that. <laughs> I never say to anybody, we spoke about how I got to what I do, mm-hmm. but not about what I believe 
occult-wise, spirit-wise, and so on. Right. But when I perform on stage, I don't tell anyone that. Because we are, we're aware that if you say you are X, mm-hmm. everyone in the audience who is also X thinks, great, you're one of us. And then they think, oh, but I disagree with you in this point and that point. Yeah. I'm remaining separate. Yeah. In all of this. So if someone is Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Wiccan, Satanist three times removed, it doesn't matter what they are. Mm -hmm. They are unaware of what I am. Therefore, they have to accept what I am saying as expert knowledge. Right. And the person who is different from them. And that's why I do that. Um, I know you watch my tarot, which that I put online mm-hmm. um, every every Monday to Friday morning. And one of the things that's apparent there to people is that I'm very much a Gurdjieff girl. I love Gurdjieff and Ouspensky's mm-hmm. fourth, fourth Way. And a lot of my thought processes and my philosophy of working in spirit and the occult comes from that lens. Mm-hmm. I would never sign on the dotted line, religion, Gurdjieff. I would never, ever do that either because it's just one part of the mix yeah. that I very much appreciate. And again, as we said at the very beginning of this, it was one of the things I started to read when I was 15 years old and my brain rebelled and said, no, too hard. But the last 10 years, love it. Yeah. Get it, understand it, enrich my life. So it's kind of back to the beginning with it all. But that's the beauty of this field, isn't it? It's a Absolutely. Circle. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a never-ending circle. But, you know, from a, a performer's perspective, that's uh, really smart about you almost um, treating yourself as almost like an object and not a, a defined person with a defined set of beliefs and opinions because then, you know, like that Christian person that's, oh, she said she's a witch. So I don't know if I can believe everything she's saying because she's a witch. Those people were witches. She's biased. And, you know, in my experience, when I, when I bring up the discrepancies between, you know, the, the neo-pagan, you know, 9 million witches burned and, and they were all actually pagans who never converted and I'm like, well, actually they were Christian people who didn't practice magic. And it was only 60,000 that, 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 uh, died. Um, they, they kind of respond like I'm betraying our people by saying that. No, you're like, you're putting your biases on me because you, cause I'm pagan. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm not going to be like, Oh, well, this isn't true, but I'm going to pretend it's true because I'm pagan. Like it's, you know, um, so no, that's very smart on your part. 
there's one thing whenever I get that, but what are you? But what are you? There is, and when you get that scenario that you just said, there's something I always bring up. I say to them, you know that old adage of, oh, you don't argue about the price of a ritual object. Where do you think that came from? It was a ritual trader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't argue about the price of the crystal ball because you'll jinx it. Yeah. I wonder who said that? Yeah. person selling the crystal ball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Way back yeah. in time. Yeah. And they get that. And then you can expand on other things because they realize, hang on a minute, I've just been stupid and found out. But there's no crime in that. It's yeah. a case of learning the whole time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's fun. I would love to see one of your shows. That, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Now, one thing maybe that I think would be kind of good to explain is the difference between mesmerism and hypnotism. Okay. Mesmerism came first. Mm -hmm. It was Franz Anton Mesmer, an Austrian physician. And he basically is the other word is animal magnetism. Now people thinking animals, no, it's anima, that life force. And the concept is you've got this life force going through your body the whole time. And you can, where, where you're ill, there's a blockage in it. Where there, when you're well, there isn't a blockage. You can give somebody extra anima there to boost themselves if they have, if it's leaking from somewhere or whatever to heal them. That is the idea. If you have a good amount of it, you're healthy and you're well. It ventures almost to what people think is hypnosis because you're giving these mystic passes over people where you're massaging the aura of the power, the anima in the body. Whereas hypnotism, which came later, used some of the attributes of mesmerism. It was a Scottish doctor called James Baird who founded hypnotism really as, as a school of thought, mm -hmm. where he used some of the mesmeric techniques, but brought it into purely, let's use this for making your mind compliant and your subconscious listening to what we're saying to create healings in that way. During spiritualist meetings in the late Victorian age, it was mesmerists who did the healings, all this hands-on people. That was the mesmerists. That mm -hmm. was what they did. They would do that. And when mesmerism eventually was denounced as flimflam, then, because doctors at the time, they, they said, oh, it's, abs it's absolute rubbish. Look, it's not doing anyone any good whatsoever. And there's a really couple of good facts to do with this. During this time, you're talking early 1700s, you had an electrical device, which was called a Leyden jar. Basically, it's a big battery. Mm -hmm. And you really couldn't control the voltage of this battery. So you've got the copper wires. And whereas the doctors of the time were saying, mesmerism doesn't work, it's flim flam, it's rubbish just using suggestion and so on. Mm 
get get going, Franz Anton Mesmer. We don't want you anywhere near here. That's <laughs> it. We've sorted him out. Now let's get back to real actual science. Where's the blind girl? Right, bring the blind girl in. Now we're just going to put these electrodes on your bare eyeballs, and then we're going to shoot you a shock from this button, from this electrical battery. <laughs> and that was medicine at the time. <laughs> oh God, we're so barbaric. Yeah, actually, it was the opposite way around. I I got it. The doctors were doing this with the Leyden jar. This poor girl, basically electrocuting her eyeballs, thinking. Let's see what it, what it does. Will it jumpstart or sight? And of course, after a number of times, it didn't. She was a gibbering wreck. Yeah. Mentally damaged. And they said, okay, let's see what the mesmerist can do. Look, she's a gibbering wreck. So let's get rid of the mesmerists because it obviously doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe exactly. electrocuting someone's eyeballs did the job. <laughs> Because it was also the mesmerists who used a stethoscope first. They used stethoscopes to assess your, your heartbeats, your lung capacity, when they were doing their work. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. A lot of people don't. But yeah. a lot of medical science came from the mesmerists, mm -hmm. which then was conveniently forgotten about of course like a, yeah like the batty ants in the attic yeah for more modern medicine yeah yeah but i mean that's you know that's the whole story of of you know science and and medicine you know uh take the good stuff from you know the herbalists and then denounce the herbalists you know um mm -hmm. take uh chemistry from the alchemists and denounce the alchemists you know denounce the midwives a woman can't deliver a baby it's got to be a male doctor yeah what does a woman know about women's parts <laughs> yeah what does a woman know about giving birth i mean come on now come on now use your use your use your 17th or your 18th century head what do they know about giving birth yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 something else. But it's fascinating, <laughs> though, to read um, science and and medicine of the 19th century, um, you know, the things that are proven and the things that were discovered, which never were proven and never were discovered. But a lot of things that we would look at nowadays as being very new agey. And being, you know, part of, you know, budding science and and medicine uh, in in the the nineteenth century, it's fascinating. It, it's it's really fascinating. Um, you know, I I have no real interest in in medical history uh, or the history of of, of um, modern medicine as something. You know, I'm going to like just sit and relax, read books about, but bits and pieces, when you learn about uh, bits and pieces of it, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting, you know, yeah. how, how certain a lot of scientists were and a lot of doctors were about these proven whatever. And nowadays we, we look at that, we're like, what? Like they actually believe this. 
absolutely science you know <clears throat> it's something else <clears throat> it's something else um so one thing and i got sidetracked uh when you were talking about the the witch's effigies and the hand of glory and you were talking about your private museum do you have a lot of artifacts um like like are you are you someone like you're collecting these artifacts for yes. your personal you know collection uh do they are do you use them some, or some of them as props in your shows absolutely i, I want to hear about your collection yeah. a little bit yeah i use a number of things in my shows the reason why is if somebody is coming to see it and they're told if they go to a museum and they see these witches dolls under glass you can't touch i want them to be a bit closer to it now i've got to have eyes like a hawk mm -hmm. obviously so people don't think oh i wonder if this wax bends and they snap it i never want that kind of scenario yeah. to occur so i've obviously got to watch but i like people to hold these items the only thing they don't hold is the hand of glory right because out of respect for what it is yeah and where it came from oh you know what really? I, i'm talking like everyone and i'm probably everyone that listens to my podcast being the nature of the podcast knows what a hand of glory is but just in case why don't you explain what a hand of glory is just so they understand it is the severed hand from a murderer who was hung on a gibbet or hung and it would be cut off. A candle would be set in it. If you watch it in the movies, it's always somewhere up here, but you can't really hold one there. It's on the palm of the hand. It's more of a squat candle it's sat there. And that would be used if you were going to break into a house to make sure everyone in the house would remain asleep so you would not be caught. So as a magical item, as a, an amulet, it is an amulet to preserve you from having your own head in a noose for housebreaking and robbery. And that's what it was used for. They were very much coveted. There are several around, many of them in private collections. I mean, mine, obviously my private museum is a private collection of a number of different things going from witchcraft to early seance to uh, old tarot cards old playing cards used for particular things uh, witches objects um, a goat skull with candles and stuff set on it which I took one night, this is a true story, from a, there's a barn in a place which will remain nameless. <laughs> For legal reasons. No, so I'm, so the, those people do not realize it was me. Yeah. But in this barn, there, there was, um, those black magic ceremonies actually taking place in that one. It was a real... Oh as a real sort of diabolist, satanic thing, not the modern Anton LaVey right. kind of stuff. It wasn't the, hey, witchcraft with black satin. Yeah. And goatee beards. Isn't, aren't we cool? I've even got a mem membership card. It's nothing like that. These were the ones who are serious. 
Mm. And I knew it happened there, these things. So I went in one night and I found this behind a bale of hay and I decided to take it. So I went off with this and it's part of my collection. Wow. Wow. How long ago was that? Let's say somewhere between somewhere in the last 50 years. Okay. <laughs> wow. I uh that's that's I think uh, it was my I think it was my 350th birthday, something okay. around there right. at the time. Okay. Good, good. That's uh that's interesting. So you said like the candles are set into this goat skull, like the, the candles, not by you, by no, them. no, no. It was that was there. Yeah. Um, so during these demonstrations that I give, is one of the things that's there, and I tell the story of it, leaving out the pertinent details of where. Right. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Wow. Living on the occult edge. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. That's something. Um, I have a friend, uh, his name is Steve Santini, and um, he's uh, an escape artist. And uh, he's in um, Ripley's Believe It or Not is the most extreme escape artist ever. And, you know, like if you Google him, he's always in like the top five or the top 10 with Houdini and, you know, as the top five ever or the top 10 ever. And um, he, I met him back in 2017, I think it was, or maybe 2018 at uh, an occult conference called Occulticon, which um, was happening in, in Southern Ontario. It's no longer around or not at the moment, at least this, this um, conference and he collects um, torture devices and he has all sort and he, his collection is amazing. Like I'm not talking about like, you know, five pieces or 10 pieces. I mean, he's, this is what he does this and Titanic um, memorabilia and other wrecks. Yeah. But all of these torture devices, um, the amount of stuff he has is insane. And the age of some of these pieces, he has um, this this cage with the original skull in it from, I, I can't even remember how old it is. If it was, can't remember if it was 17th century or 18th century. And the like thumb screws and, the 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 pricker now the thing is i you know having an a, an interest in the 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 witch trials uh in europe and you know really wanting to get to the bottom of that nine million number you know i've done a lot of reading on the rich tri- witch trials to really get a good understanding of what happened and so you know you always hear about the pricker and, and whatnot but i you know I think as a modern person, you can't help but think of like a long needle, Mm -hmm. which that's not what the witch pricker was. I mean, it's like a ship maker's all. Yeah. I mean, it's it's thicker than an ice pick. Like it's ghastly. It's ghastly. 
these all these items and they're fascinating to look at they're fascinating to be within inches of them and to know their age and know that these aren't replicas these aren't props these are used tools of torture yeah um but it's just it, it's ghastly when you're you could read about them every day all day but when you're presented with them and yes. you just realize how horrific they are um the, the scottish method of it now scots did use the witch pricker as an extra that was the ultra proving item but the scottish way because i said didn't involve torture mm. no physical torture so you could kind of say scots invented mental torture right because the idea was you had your hair shorn and then there's about a piece of chain about six inches long on an iron collar that goes around the neck. It's got spikes up and down. You're not tortured, but you're, you wear that. It's also about five foot above ground, level attached to the wall. Okay. So you cannot sleep. Because you're going to cut yourself. Right, right. So you're not, you cannot sleep. You have to stay awake. And sleep deprivation can be an awful thing. Yeah. If you're left with that until you confess for maybe weeks on end, you are going to be screwy. You'll confess to anything. Yeah, absolutely. By the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. That was where the Scottish bit comes in. And in some town centres, there's a place called Kirkubri in the southwest of Scotland. And by the toll booth there, basically where sentences were carried out, you can still see one of these in the wall. Really? Because, yeah. Now, the one they've got there doesn't have spikes. Right. Because later on, the church decided that women who chastised their husbands had to be dealt a lesson for being bad, right. for being bad wives. So they would have a week of having this around their neck outside the toll booth, and then they could go home. Could you imagine a week of that? That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. But this is where... The piece that a lot of people don't realize, the collar with the spikes on each side. The National Museum of Scotland have a great one in their, uh, in their museum. It's got a really good one. And you can see it online as well. You can see okay. this um, collar. In local parlance in the southwest of Scotland, they call it the Dukes. I've got no idea why, mm -hmm. where it comes from but that's the local name for it. But this witch's collar was there to make you have, well, just so so you would confess. Yeah. Because you ain't getting out of it unless you do. Yeah. I, can, I just, I can't imagine. I can't, I just cannot imagine. It's horrific. It really is. It really is. Uh, do you have anything like that in your, collection or is your collection more like like witchcraft artifacts magical artifacts i've got witch i've got a witch pricker there because i demonstrate it on myself okay 
in the witches' demonstration. Um, it's kind of the best way to describe it. If you know what you're doing, you can do it without harming yourself. Yeah. But you really need to know what you're doing. Otherwise, you will mess up your arm. Your fingers won't work and things like that. So it's a bit like um, ac acupuncture for head cases, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's the best description. But I use a thinner needle than the great big thick one. Right, 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 right. I use one that's a bit thinner so it can be demonstrated because I don't want to lose use of my arm. So <laughs> I I hedge it. I hedge, I hedge the odds in my favour when I do it. I would and think. I wouldn't do it at every performance. I've got to feel all right about doing it and confident when I do it. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, the, oh, the audience must love that though. Like they, they must be like just freaked out, and I can just imagine all that. Oh, oh, oh! But, but I've they... only had one painter. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to see it but I wouldn't be able to look away. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, oh, oh, oh my God, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to look away, but I don't want to see that. Yeah, that's got to be quite the, uh, quite the addition to the show. Quite gross. Yeah, yeah. Grossest thing. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's good to, to show that, though. It's like, and, and this is a thin needle. Look at what the real one look like you know imagine what we did to these people absolutely just because absolutely. just because they were old or because they were foul-mouthed or you know they had uh mental health issues this was their punishment for just being born that way you know absolutely yeah it's it's quite shocking. It's quite shocking, and I don't think we've, uh, as as humans, I don't think we've evolved much beyond that. To be perfectly honest, not really. No, <laughs> not that's really. evidence. <laughs> not really. Not at all. I mean, I, you know, that's I, I I don't even think that's 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 an opinion up for debate. Really, you know, I think something like that can come back just like that really oh, easy. absolutely yeah really really easy well you have to just see things such as what's happened in the balkans and and so on very quickly from people being neighbors to being mortal enemies yeah how quickly things can just turn and the ways in which to um treat people because one of the reasons I love doing the witches thing especially is because when people at the end, they'll say, some people will say, but that doesn't, it's just so good that doesn't happen anymore. Say, well, actually, in a number of countries around the world, it does. Mm -hmm. If you were to go to Saudi Arabia and you were found guilty of witchcraft, you'd be taken to your Walmart's, as Safeway car park, and you would be beheaded in the in the car park, yeah. which happens there today. Yeah. yeah. And people say, "What? 
people don't realize that, oh, this is ages ago. This is something we see in Hollywood made movies. And then when they realize it's not, and then they realize if they ask that, because I'll never say it in it, mm. in the presentation, because it's not part of it. Yeah. But it's like they say, oh, I, but it doesn't happen nowadays. And that's a good thing. So good. And they say, well, actually. And then when the penny drops with it, oh, help. Um, but I'm not going to go into politics. and Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Like, countries we don't. <laughs> but knowledge is power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 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 So um, I don't know. Is there anything? Uh, anything? I don't else? think there is. I think yeah. you've covered everything under the sun, really. Yeah. Yeah. This has been uh, really fun. Or under the moon. Or under the moon. Yeah. So um, you have a website. That's right. Yeah. It is carahamilton.co.uk. Just about everything I do is on the website. I do weekly horoscopes, which go on there because I do, I write them for a number of newspapers. All the things about the different presentations that I do. There's a, a what's on guide for what I, where I'm performing and when. And there's some other interesting things. There's articles and so on. There's articles about me, articles I've written for publications and, and so on. There's a lot of different things, things there. And I keep adding to them when I get around to it, yeah. which sounds like when I can be bothered. But it's when <laughs> I get something, I try and put things on that I don't want someone to say, so what? I want them to think, wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So when I've got something like that, I put it on and I'm quite delighted to, to do that. So there's lots of stuff on there. What you will not see on the website is performance of any of the things we've spoken about for the simple reason, seeing it in person can be jaw-dropping. Right. To see some of these things, like I said, someone reading Russian and English, getting it accurate, and they don't know Russian. Yeah. So to do things like this, me doing the witch pricker through my arm or through my neck, something like that, seeing these things, seeing these psychic experiments live has an impact. And watching it in a video, People can just say anything. Yeah. And people can try and copy. But some of it's very dangerous. So I don't want them to copy. Yeah. So I leave it purely for when you see me live. That's excellent. And that's, and that's the rationale. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. And everyone can also follow you on Twitter as well. That's right. And I think it's Cara L at Cara L Hamilton, mm -hmm. I think. I think that's what it is. You know, it's funny, like we live on social media nowadays and I can't even remember like, what, is there a height, you know, with, with all of mine, like, is there a hyphen? Is there, um, uh, Cara L. Hamilton, C-A-R-A, Cara, not K-A-R-A. Yeah. 
Um, so at Kara L. Hamilton for anyone uh, that wants to follow you on Twitter, which I recommend that they do because you put some fun stuff up there and you do your um, uh, daily tarot videos that you put on there, which are nice as well. So um, I do recommend that uh, everyone uh, go and follow you on Twitter as well. Um, I Just for um, the listeners information, um, your website and your uh, uh, Twitter um, will be in the show notes to this episode. So they don't have to rewind. I just said rewind. You can sure tell my age, go back and, and in the podcast and try to find uh, your web uh, website address. It's going to be in the show notes anyway. So. Oh, super. Yeah. It's been delightful chatting to you and talking this with you through this. So thank you so has much. It's been so fun. I strangely feel like you're like a, a next door neighbor to me. And that's probably just because, you, you know, your time here in Canada, in Winnipeg, uh, Saskatchewan and whatnot. But I feel like we, we, we're, we're not, you know, on opposite sides of the planet. So, you know, it was nice to chat with you and, and hear all of your great stories and everything. And uh, I know the listeners will enjoy a lot of those stories. So yeah, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate you being here. So um, yeah, you take care. And and I'm crossing my fingers that uh, COVID isn't gonna prevent your travels too much longer because we need to get you back on stage and freaking out the locals. That would be a pleasure. (laughs) All right. So thank you so much, Kara Hamilton. And again, for my listeners, um, um, check out her website, follow her on Twitter. And of course, as you know, everyone, I'm all over social media. The best way to find me is to go to laylokensalwin.com slash links. That gives you all of my links to all of my social media, um, the Lux Files uh, social media my YouTube channel and whatnot. So that link is in the show notes as well. So go ahead and follow me all over social media, follow Kara all over social media. And until next time, everyone, take care. Bye. Bye.